Good morning to all. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We are here to consider important ambassadorial nominees, William Duncan to be ambassador to El Salvador, Hugo Rodriguez to be ambassador to Nicaragua, uh, Candace Bond to be ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago, Heidi Fulton to be ambassador to Uruguay, and uh, Robert Fouché. Did I get that right, Robert? Robert Fouché to be Ambassador to Suriname. I want to congratulate all of you on your nominations and provide thanks to you and your, for your willingness to serve and thanks especially to members of your family because you can't do one of these posts uh, without them sacrificing. I will first introduce the nominees, uh, then I'll offer opening remarks and turn to Ranking Member Rubio for opening remarks and then we'll then have opening statements from each of the nominees before proceeding to questions. Introductions. Um, William Duncan is Senior Inspector in the Office of the Inspector General at the Department of State, previously served as Consul General in Monterey, and before that as DCM at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. Foreign Service Officer since 1992, happy 20th anniversary. He also served in Asuncion, Madrid, Baghdad, Mexico City, Bogota, San Salvador, and Matamoros. A native of Louisiana, Mr. Duncan has a bachelor's degree and a Juris Doctor from the University of Arkansas and is fluent in Spanish. Uh, Hugo Rodriguez, Jr. is a senior advisor in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs at State. He most recently served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemispheres, focused on Central America and Mexico. Previously, um, Mr. Rodriguez served as the DCM at the U.S. Embassy in Asuncion, Paraguay, and as Consul General at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. Other overseas assignments include Lima, Peru, Rome, Italy. He's a native of Pennsylvania, but to my Liking, he holds an MBA from the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia and a bachelor's degree from Hampton Sydney College. He's fluent in Italian and Spanish. Candace Bond currently serves as the president and CEO of uh, AESA Inc., a Los Angeles-based real estate and community development business advisory services company. She's also a board member of California Head Start, the chair-elect of the board of the Greater LA Education Foundation, and chair of the MLK Health and Wellness Community Development Corporation. She served on the board of the LA County Office of Education, the nation's largest regional educational agency. Ms. Bond also serves as on the California State Treasurer's Housing, Economic Development, Jobs and Opportunity Zone Committee. She graduated uh, with both a bachelor's degree and an MBA from Harvard. Heidi Fulton is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Programs in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement. She previously served as the Director of the Office of Mexican Affairs, led the U.S. Embassy in Honduras as DCM and Charged Affairs. She served overseas in Kabul, Quito, Phnom Penh, and Manila, and is a former Pearson Fellow, uh, which is a prestigious fellowship of members of the State Department and Senate offices where she had the fortune to serve in the office of Senator Menendez. Ms. Fulton was also an active duty um, Army officer as a quartermaster with the U.S. Army in Virginia, Germany, Luxembourg, Netherlands, and Italy. She retired from the U.S. Army Reserve in June of 20 after 28 years of service. She's born in Buffalo, graduate of Boston College and Troy State University and is fluent in Spanish. Finally, uh, Robert Fouché most recently served as the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the, for the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. Prior, he was Director of the Office of Western European Affairs in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs and has held positions in the offices of UN Political Affairs and UN Specialized and Technical Agencies 
in the Bureau of International Organizational Affairs. Fouché has served as the DCM at U.S. embassies in Belgium, Ireland, Suriname, and Luxembourg. He grew up in Arizona, holds degrees from Arizona State University, Edinburgh University, and the National War College, and he's fluent in Dutch and French. Very, very talented panel. Um, so, my remarks, I want to congratulate all of you on the nominations, representing the U.S. and the American people in any capacity is an honor to represent with the title of ambassador is a, is a true, true distinction. And I'm sure based on each of your impress, impressive professional backgrounds, you will serve with real distinction in these roles. I'm pleased to chair the nomination hearing for these five important posts throughout the Western Hemisphere. El Salvador, Nicaragua, Trinidad and Tobago, Uruguay, and Suriname. I always talk about the importance of this region to the United States. Not only do we share deep and important cultural, historical, and economic ties, but we also have interests in addressing the shared challenges together with countries throughout the region. Having our best team in the field is absolutely critical to advancing those interests as well as our values in the Western Hemisphere. Our relations with Salvador are fragile. We've watched with growing concern as El Salvador's government has, has taken an increasingly authoritarian turn after a, a somewhat promising beginning with a government that was not connected with, with sort of past challenges in El Salvador. Having an ambassador in place to advance values and interests in El Salvador and continue our support for the Salvadoran people will be critical. In Nicaragua, the Ortega regime sham elections last year including the imprisoning of, of uh, many, many presidential candidates, and they're intensifying attacks against opposition figures or other critics, including religious leaders. The, the order connected with Mother Teresa just got kicked out of Nicaragua by President Ortega. These are significant concerns. We need to continue pressing for the restoration of democratic rights in Nicaragua and work with regional and international partners to support the Nicaraguan people in finding a way forward. So Mr. Rodriguez, you'll have your work cut out for you and we look forward to hearing about your approach in Managua should you be confirmed. Um, in the Caribbean, Trinidad and Tobago share a commitment to democracy. They've remained a steadfast partner of the United States in the Caribbean. We have strong cultural ties, a vibrant diaspora community in the United States. And this August, Trinidad and Tobago will be celebrating 60 years of independence. Having a confirmed ambassador will send an important signal reaffirming our partnership with Trinidad and Tobago, and in particular, I will ask questions in this regard with respect to the ability of Trinidad and Tobago to be a, a, a force for energy security in a world where there is significant energy insecurity. And Uruguay is considered one of the strongest democracies in the world, and that fact deserves a lot more recognition in Washington and elsewhere. Uruguay seeks greater cooperation with the U.S. My view is that we should support that cooperation, and I look forward to hearing from Ms. Fulton about how we can strengthen ties with this very important partner. Finally, Suriname's 2020 election of President Santoki offers the potential uh, to a new chapter in U.S. relations with Suriname fo following President uh, Bauterse's decades-long rule, which included his and his son's separate convictions as drug traffickers, traffickers and his own conviction for the 1982 December murders in Suriname. Suriname, like Trinidad and Tobago and Guyana, also offer prospects for advancing energy security in the world, and I would like to uh, direct questions to Mr. Fouché about how we can work on that. So we look forward to hearing from each of you today. I look forward to 
working with you. And now I'm proud to introduce the ranking member, Senator Rubio, who, who has been such a strong champion for U.S. relations in the Americas. I'm, I'm very, very glad we have a chance to work together. Senator Mr. Rubio. Chairman, th thank you for scheduling this hearing. And uh, you've been a great partner to work with on this. And, um, and I appreciate it and look forward to working with you on this. Again, I want to congratulate each of you um, there, uh, for your willingness to serve. Thank you to, for your willingness to serve and congratulate you on your appointments and, uh, and your nominations. And um, I guess I don't really have an opening statement. I do have sort of a mini rant to open, and it's not about any of you individually. It has more to do with our region. You know, when I hear people talk about, like, we need to care more about the Western Hemisphere, it's reminiscent of, like, they say, you also need to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables. You know, it's a good thing for you. It's good for your health, and you should really do it. But we, most of us never get around to it, um, well, speaking for myself anyway. I know I need to. So the, the point being is this is not just a nice thing to do. It's critical to our national security and our national economic interests that geography matters. It matters for a lot of different reasons, and, and, uh, but it matters because proximity matters. And because we see it firsthand. You know, there's economic, look at the migrant crisis that we face on the border today. Those are all people coming from places where life is not good. And at the cornerstone of why life is not good in those countries, the violence, the economic deprivations, whatever it may be, is poor governance and bad decisions made over a sustained period of time. So that alone is a national interest. But then not to mention we do have near-peer adversaries. We didn't 25 years ago. The United States lived in a unipolar world where we were the only show in town. Now there are an, at least one unprecedented near-peer adversary. The Chinese Communist Party uh, is a challenge to the United States unlike greater even than what the Soviet Union was um, because they are a commercial rival, a technological rival, a geopolitical rival, a diplomatic rival, uh, and, an economic, uh, and a commercial one. And in addition to all of that, they are also uh, a military threat uh, to the country as they continue to develop. And they have an interest in the region. They want to extract minerals and have mineral rights, certainly. But they also want leverage. They want control over countries so that they'll vote with them at international fora, and ultimately so they could potentially uh, position themselves either on a rotational basis or permanently all over the world militarily and the like. In essence, they would love nothing more than to encircle the United States and to have uh, put themselves in a position in each of the countries, for example, that all of you have been nominated to serve in, but more broadly in the region, they want to be in a position one day to no matter who gets elected in those countries, do whatever they want because that country owes them too much money and they own too many things in that country to break away from it. And so that's the fundamental challenge that all of you are walking into. And in the context of that is how I need, think we need to guide our foreign policy. And, and so we're, I hope we'll have a chance to talk about that today. You know, as we go through some of the countries highlighted here in today's hearing, in, in Uruguay, is one, we have a president uh, who's been trying to work with the United States on things like uh, reducing barriers to trade. Um, but unfortunately, because we don't have a strategic approach to that relationship, it's not a partisan attack. I think you can say that of virtually any administration in the last 30 years. Because we don't have a well thought out and executed a strategic approach to the region, um, you have someone who basically feels like his only options for development are to cut a deal uh, with the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, do a deal with the devil in that regard. In Suriname, you have a president who's uh, struggling to manage more than a billion dollars in Chinese debt that, he, that his predecessor took on. And, uh, and we have this administration that has this single-minded focus on climate change and therefore doesn't seem interested in helping them develop markets and or their capabilities uh, because it happens to be uh, oil and gas. And in, in El Salvador, we have a very uh, interesting situation. Um, on the one hand, um, you know, we've seen some of the 
obviously there's been economic chaos, some of the internal political things. I'm not a big fan of everything that's been done or there, but I'm, I also think it's a, it's a relationship that it's important for us to manage appropriately. And, you know, our charge, I believe, has left post um, and sort of announced some strategic pause in efforts to reach out to them. So, um, you know, as we, as we talk about going there, Mr. Duncan, you're, you're, it's a very, very challenging situation and one that I'd love to hear your thoughts as, as to what the road forward is because I'm hoping that we can still have a relationship uh, in El Salvador that's pragmatic. We don't have to clap or celebrate all the stuff people do that we don't necessarily think is good, but I also think we have a national interest concern there that needs to be balanced. In Trinidad and Tobago, uh, the Prime Minister uh, unfortunately continues to uh, be a supporter of the Maduro regime and, it's, um, and signing agreements to join the Belt and Road Initiative of the Communist Party. Nicaragua is an horrific disaster. Um, I think it's the second poorest country in the, in the hemisphere, but more importantly, and, and uh, just as important, is the, I mean, this is a country where the president arrested every one of his political opponents. If you ran for president, you went to jail. I mean, that's, I don't, I mean, not even Putin, just everybody, he at least has an official opposition. Here, um, this is, uh, it's pretty stunning, the direction that's taken, and even more troubling is they have now rolled out the red carpet, this open invitation for both Chinese and Russian military stationing in the region. I think the Russians have their hand full right now, but you could see a presence there, but the Chinese may one day take them up on it. And, um, and that would be, I mean, if we wake up in a world where a, but the Chinese have a military basing arrangement in our own hemisphere, it would be a, a very troubling turn in regional affairs and, and one that I think is a threat that, um, that, that we can't overlook. So, um, you know, all of these places we're, we're facing uh, some, some real challenges, and, and, and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to talk about those today. Again, I am grateful for your willingness to serve, but we've got a big problems on our hands in this region, and we better start taking it seriously, or we're going to wake up in less than a decade living in a very different world than the one we live in now and the one we grew up in. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. So there's an embarrassment of riches. I've already done introductions, but for Ms. Bond, you've got a second introducer that's even better, and that's Senator Booker. After he does an introduction of you, uh, we'll go beginning with Mr. Duncan and move from my right to left, and each of you will do your opening statements, if you could. Senator Booker. Mr. President, I cannot tell you how Mr. President, I really, man, I, I love that. <laughs> you will always be my president, <laughs> sir. I, because I was Lieutenant Governor of Virginia and President of the Senate, that, that has been a title that's been applied to me in that August. But role. you were referred to as Your Excellency in that role. Uh, no, as Governor, I was Your Excellency. As <laughs> Lieutenant Governor, I was Mr. President. Mr. Virginia Grand does things differently. Mr. Grand Poobah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, am, I cannot tell you how thrilled I am that I get this uh, privilege to introduce somebody uh, that I have known for some years now. Um, and I, I wonder, Mr. President, if you know what an Alaskan sled dog, a worker bee in the spring, and uh, an Olympic athlete all have in common. They are all jealous of Ms. Bond's work ethic. Uh, she is an extraordinary person. And in fact, if James Brown was the hardest person, working person in show business, she is the one of the hardest working people I've ever met in public service. She brings a long and distinguished record of leadership to this position. She's chair of the Malibu Foundation, board member of the Women's Founders Network, and a member of the so Southern California Edison Clean Energy Access Working Group. She also serves on the California State Treasurer's Housing, Economic Development, Jobs, and Opportunity Zones Ad Hoc Committee. 
Earlier in her career, she was president, uh, a title that's eluded us, all of us here, um, <laughs> and CEO of Infusion Media Partners and served as both VP and general manager of Essence Entertainment, which is, has biblical importance to the black community. Her wide-ranging business background, her commitment to affecting meaningful, substantive, thorough social change is just awesome. She has experience addressing a host of critical issues for the larger American community from health, housing, education, workforce development, and is, for all of those reasons, an extraordinarily well-qualified person to be ambassador of Trinidad and Tobago. If there's any criticism I have, and I should lay that plain on the table, is that her education is one of two safety schools. She, went, had, she has her BA from Harvard and her uh, MBA from Harvard Business School. But beside that, despite that blemish, uh, she is a recipient of numerous awards of leadership from her peers, awards of leadership and service, including the Women uh, Leaders of Los Angeles 2021 award selected by the Los Angeles County Office of Education, the Women of Distinction Award by the Special Network of Needs, just to name a few. Presently, she serves as a board member of California Head Start, a program and organization very dear to me. She is chair-elect of the board of the Greater LA Education Foundation and chair of the MLK Health and Wellness Community Development Foundation. Ms. Bond also served on the board of the Los Angeles County Office of Education, the nation's largest regional education agency. Look, I am confident that her distinguished record of leadership, of service, of love of country and patriotism demonstrated by action will make her a great ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago. And then finally, I will say, all my Trinidadian friends have told me throughout the years that the best carnival all throughout uh, the Caribbean is in Trinidad. Well, I don't know what kind of celebration they will have in the future, but I know that when this incredible person is confirmed as ambassador, we in the Senate should have a carnival to celebrate that good and wise choice. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Booker. Ms. Bond, he's set a pretty high bar. You better be good. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but now what we'll do is we'll, we'll begin with Mr. Duncan. Um, your full statements are in the record. We'd ask you to keep your uh, verbal statement to less than five minutes. We're glad to hear from all of you, and we'll just move right to left, from my right to left across the dais. Mr. Duncan, welcome. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, and distinguished members of the committee, it is an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be the next United States Ambassador to the Republic of El Salvador. I deeply appreciate the privilege and responsibility it is to be considered for confirmation as Ambassador. I deeply respect the role of the Senate in the work of ensuring that our nation has a foreign policy that reflects our values. Please allow me to recognize my wife, Nora, who is with me today, uh, and our daughters, Claire, Irma Nora, and Laura, and our grandson, Ace. Let me also thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for this opportunity and for their confidence in me. My 30-year foreign service career has taken me to many countries, including El Salvador, also Mexico, Colombia, Paraguay, among others, as well as many domestic assignments uh, working on Western Hemisphere affairs. It has also given me the opportunity to work in service of U.S. policies supporting democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. The relationship between El Salvador and the United States has been very close for the last four decades. 
Through a terrible civil war, a complex peace process, and into today's challenges, such as fighting transnational organized crime and promoting prosperity, the United States has stood with El Salvador. And over those years, many Salvadorans have become our fellow citizens. Two and a half million Salvadorans now live here. They make an enormous contribution to our national story through their extraordinary creativity and work ethic, and to El Salvador through billions of dollars in remittances returned each year. I started my foreign service career at a consulate on the U.S.-Mexico border. I learned there that there is no higher duty for us than the protection of American citizens. If confirmed, that would be my number one priority. We face a serious challenge from irregular migration from northern Central America, some of it from El Salvador. During many years in Mexico, I had the opportunity to learn what it means to make that trek. One thing is clear to me. It is a dangerous journey undertaken by desperate people. I know from living there that Salvadorans are proud. If they could make a better, safer, and more stable life in El Salvador, I believe most would choose to stay. If confirmed, I would do everything in my power to see that the assistance provided by Congress to address the root causes of irregular migration is spent effectively. And while we are not the only country offering assistance, we are notable for supporting and promoting the long-term well-being of our partners as opposed to seeking our own short-term advantage. El Salvador has no better friend than the United States of America. I recognize there are concerns about the strength and direction of El Salvador's democracy. And while I will always act with respect and sovereignty, for respect for the sovereignty and dignity of the government of El Salvador, if confirmed, I would be an advocate for democracy, human rights, and combating corruption and impunity. These are not only moral imperatives, they are the best guarantee for the long-term stability and prosperity of any country. No country in the Western Hemisphere can alone successfully confront transnational organized crime. We must work together. Strengthening the rule of law in El Salvador is essential if we are going to discourage irregular migration. Without the rule of law, El Salvador will never have the economic growth it needs nor will it be able to prevent human rights abuses and attacks on civil liberties, reduce gender-based violence, or defeat the threat from criminal gangs, all drivers of irregular migration. Promoting the interest of U.S. businesses in El Salvador would also be a priority if I am confirmed. It is important to prosperity here at home, but I am also convinced U.S. businesses at their best set an example of transparency and fair dealing that will be emulated. I have had the honor to serve in challenging leadership positions, such as Deputy Chief of Mission in Mexico City. In that tour of duty and others, I was fortunate to work with the representatives of many U.S. government agencies. If confirmed, I would dedicate myself to the success of each U.S. agency's mission in El Salvador. I have also had the honor to work with fellow Americans and foreign national employees from a wide variety of backgrounds. We are a diverse nation and should have an overseas presence that proudly respects that diversity. I look forward to this opportunity to advance America's interest in El Salvador if confirmed, and I stand ready to answer any questions you may have today and in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Rodriguez. Good morning. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, distinguished members of the committee, it is an honor to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to serve as the next United States Ambassador to Nicaragua. I am grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their trust and confidence in me, and if confirmed, I look forward to working with you and your colleagues in Congress 
to advance the interests of the United States in Nicaragua. Before I begin, I'd like to take a moment to thank my parents, Gail and Hugo Rodriguez Sr., my five brothers and sisters, my teachers and professors, and my State Department colleagues. I have learned from them all the value of hard work, especially in service to others, and the importance of listening deeply before speaking. I want to thank my daughters, Allison and Analia, for making our peripatetic life richer and more meaningful, hardly ever complaining about our many moves and long working hours. And most of all, I want to thank my wife and fellow Foreign Service Officer Karen Rodriguez. This career has been a team effort, and, any, and I owe anything I have achieved to Karen's enthusiastic support, her wise counsel, and her enduring willingness to shoulder more than her share of the home burden in addition to her day job. She inspires me every day. In 1958, my father left the Dominican Republic, fleeing a dictatorship that allowed average Dominicans no space for freedom and no hope of achieving their dreams. Unfortunately, Nicaraguans now face a similar situation since last November's election, when Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo deprived Nicaraguans of any real choice and Nicaraguans' hopes for democracy and prosperity were dashed. More than 180 political prisoners including political opposition figures, human rights defenders, student leaders, journalists, religious groups, and civil society representatives remain behind bars, deprived of their human rights. The Nicaraguan government also closed civic space at an alarming rate, shuttering more than 700 associations, universities, foundations, and other nonprofits in 2022 alone. As a result of the escalating climate of repression, fear, and hopelessness, along with the Ortega Murillo government's failure to address people's basic needs, hundreds of thousands of Nicaraguans are now refugees, asylum seekers, and migrants throughout the region. The United, Sa the United States has spoken out against these abuses, and if confirmed, I will continue to do so, not because we have any intention of meddling in Nicaragua's internal affairs, but because it is our commitment under the Inter-American Democratic Charter, which both the United States and Nicaragua signed in 2001. As President Biden has stated, the Inter-American Democratic Charter obligates the hemisphere to stand up for the democratic rights of the Nicaraguan people. If confirmed, I commit to working with Congress, interagency colleagues, and international partners to press for a return to democracy, respect for human rights, and the immediate release of all political prisoners in Nicaragua. While we fundamentally disagree with the actions of the Ortega-Murillo government, the relationship between our two countries goes much deeper than political leadership. More than 400,000 people of Nicaraguan descent live in the United States. Around 6,000 Americans visit Nicaragua each year and another 20,000 reside there. The United States has long supported economic development throughout Central America and a prosperous, stable, and democratic Central America is clearly in our interest. That is why, if confirmed, I will engage with voices across Nicaraguan society to share our vision of inclusive economic growth, as stated by the President at the recent Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. We will look to support civil, civil society groups that provide essential services in the areas of healthcare, education, and poverty relief, including organizations the Nicaraguan government has targeted. We will do what we can to offer the Nicaraguan people a better future in their own country. 
We know that addressing the root causes of irregular migration and forced displacement throughout Central America, and including Nicaragua, involves ensuring respect for human rights, generating economic opportunity, and improving citizen security. These improvements require governments to uphold the rule of law and combat corruption. If confirmed, I will advocate for a change of course so that the Nicaraguan people may work to recover their democracy, provide for their families, and regain hope for their future. Mr. Chair, Ranking Member and Committee Members, I thank you again for your consideration of my nomination, and I welcome your questions. Thank you so much, Ms. Bond. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Rubio, and distinguished members of the committee. It is my honor to appear as President Biden's nominee for U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. I am proud to have my husband, Steve McKeever, our daughter, Maddox, and my brother, Les Bond, Jr., here today. They have been constantly supportive through this process. And I'm also thankful for the love and support of my son, mother, and many family members who are watching this hearing. Our family represents a proud line of black educators, professionals, and community leaders Slaves, our family has made meaningful contributions to the fabric of our nation. Ours is a very American story. My mother, Anita Bond, was the first black female graduate from St. Louis University. She graduated magna cum laude, and she recently received her honorary doctorate. She also served as president of the St. Louis School Board and on President Lyndon Johnson's Civil Rights Commission. My late father, Dr. Les Bond, was a prominent physician, surgeon, and community leader and was appointed to the St. Louis Board of Police Commissioners. Other prominent members of our family, including Julian Bond, former NAACP chairman, were passionate about improving the quality of life for their communities. Theirs are the shoulders on which I proudly stand. I have sought to apply my abilities to devise solutions that lift people up strengthen communities, and inspire sustainable change. After completing my graduate education, I held senior executive positions at leading cultural, media, and entertainment companies. At ASA Inc., I advised public and private entities in areas of social impact, community, and business development. I played a key role in advancing transformational infrastructure and commercial projects that served my community. I also worked to improve our public education system for over 2 million families as an official for the Los Angeles County Office of Education. As chair of the MLK Community Development Corporation, I'm working to improve health equity and access to care for underserved populations. Additionally, I have fought to ensure that no community is left out of our clean energy future, representing small businesses and environmental groups on California's Utility Consumer Advisory Panel. The values instilled in me by my family and my experiences as a business and community leader have equipped me to advance the common interests of the United States in Trinidad and Tobago as ambassador. As a specialist in building strong public-private partnerships, I understand the value of good governance in promoting equitable economic prosperity and ensuring that democracies can meet the needs of and deliver for their people. If confirmed as an ambassador, I will work to promote accountability and transparency and combat corruption, which not only helps improve overall climate for foreign direct investment and trade, but also enables inclusive and sustainable economic growth for all citizens. 
As the U.S. looks to partner with countries to reduce climate impacts and bolster energy security, Trinidad and Tobago is well positioned to help speed the development of clean energy infrastructure and climate adaptation projects in the region. While natural gas remains a cornerstone of Trinidad and Tobago's economy, it is looking ahead towards diversifying its energy resources. Through support for improved access to financing and technical assistance, the U.S. can help spur Trinidad and Tobago's transition to a sustainable and resilient economy. Of course, my greatest responsibility, if confirmed, will be ensuring the safety and security of the 13,000 American citizens living in Trinidad and Tobago and the thousands more who visit each year for business and tourism. Keeping Americans safe also requires the diligent implementation of Caribbean Basin Security Initiative-funded citizen safety programs that work to prevent gang violence, reduce violent crime, and strengthen Trinidad and Tobago's judicial system. Trinidad and Tobago is a regional leader on security and a partner in the fight against transnational organized crime. I look forward to working with the government of Trinidad and Tobago and international partners to help better support vulnerable populations, including victims of human trafficking, as well as Venezuelan migrants and refugees. I hope to work together with this committee to address pressing diplomatic matters in Trinidad and Tobago and the broader region. I am humbled by the Honorable Mission President Biden, Vice President Harris, and Secretary Blinken have asked me to take on as Ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago, and if confirmed, I pledge to dedicate my skills and energy to strengthen our diplomatic and economic ties to Trinidad and Tobago, to advance U.S. interests in the world, and to promote American democratic values. I'm happy to answer any questions that the committee may have, and I look forward to working with you if confirmed. Thanks so much. Ms. Fulton. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, members of the committee, it's an honor to be here today as President Biden's nominee to serve as the next U.S. Ambassador to the Oriental Republic of Uruguay. I'm humbled by the trust and confidence that President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken have shown by putting my name forward to, for consideration at this pivotal moment in our bilateral relationship. And if confirmed, look forward to working with you and your teams to enhance the opportunities presented before us. I'm grateful for the support of my family, including my husband, James Fulton, a Foreign Service Specialist and retired Army Special Forces Officer, and our two children, Anamkara and Cormac Fulton. I'd also like to thank my parents, Bob and Gretchen Bronke, who have instilled in me the values of hard work, dedication, and integrity, which they have modeled throughout their lives. I regret that travel and work commitments have prevented any of them from joining me, but I'm very happy to have the support of a longtime friend and Senate staffer, Barbara Pryor, with me today. Throughout my career at the State Department, I've led complex organizations and negotiated large-scale initiatives. This includes my present position as a Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, where I oversee Western Hemisphere programs and our aviation portfolio. In this capacity, I oversee more than $2 billion of programming in 28 countries. I have hands-on experience combating corruption, strengthening the civilian law enforcement capacity of our partners, shaping our rule of law programs throughout the hemisphere, and fighting to stem the flow of synthetic drugs and other narcotics that have killed more than 100,000 Americans over this past year. I helped to shape the bicentennial framework with Mexico, which reset and rejuvenated our security cooperation with this key partner. I led the U.S. mission in Honduras during a tumultuous period of contested 2017 national elections, where I protected U.S. interests and preserved our strategic objectives. 
I've drawn on my formation of 28 years as an Army officer and 25 years as a public diplomacy practitioner to forge strong relationships based on open communication and mutual understanding. These have been hallmarks of my career. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with you and this committee and others in Congress to use these skills to enhance our robust bilateral relationship with Uruguay and to advance the interests and security of the American people. This will include significant focus in three areas. Enhancing economic ties between our nations, working with Uruguay as a democratic leader in the hemisphere, and strengthening the position of the United States as one of Uruguay's key diplomatic partners. Uruguay is a valued partner in the Western Hemisphere. With its large middle class, strong history of democratic values, and dedicated engagement in multilateral organizations, Uruguay is one of the most economically and politically stable countries in Latin America. Uruguay has spoken out strongly against Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine and democratic backsliding in the region, in addition to welcoming more than 20,000 refugees fleeing the dictatorship in Venezuela. Uruguay has, has historically played a key role in global peacekeeping efforts as one of the world's top troop-contributing nations per capita. Uruguay is recognized as a global leader in its use of renewable energy sources, and we are expanding our joint efforts towards more sustainable agriculture. If confirmed as ambassador, I will work diligently to strengthen cooperation with the government of Uruguay and international organizations to combat transnational criminal organizations and all forms of trafficking. The United States is one of Uruguay's largest trading partners and an important investor. If confirmed, I will seek to deepen economic ties and develop new business opportunities in Uruguay on behalf of U.S. companies. As Uruguay prepares to implement its 5G networks, I will also, if confirmed, encourage Uruguay to embrace the principles of competition and technology neutrality while prioritizing security, resilience, and innovation. In closing, I look forward to working closely with you and your teams to, and other relevant stakeholders to advance our national security interests, to maintain a strong relationship with Uruguay, and to support continued cooperation on defending democratic institutions in the region. I think that we have tremendous opportunities with the Oriental Republic of Uruguay, a country with an outsized influence in the region. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, members of the committee, it is an honor to be here before you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. And finally, Mr. Fouché. Thank you. Good morning. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you as President Biden's nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Suriname. I want to thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their confidence in me. And I look forward, if I'm confirmed, to working with Congress to advance U.S. interests in Suriname and the Caribbean region. Before I start, I would like to introduce today my wife, Nora Lee, who is here with me today. Nora Lee has been a source of inspiration, strength, and wisdom throughout our years together, and I owe much to her. I would also like to express my profound thanks to my daughters, Stephanie and Melissa, who cannot be here but are watching from Rotterdam. I would like to recognize them for their repeated personal sacrifices as they too have proudly served our nation as representatives abroad. Suriname is a peaceful young democracy that is among the most ethnically and religiously diverse countries in the world. 
Although not well known in the United States, Suriname's roots are intertwined with our nation's founding through English colonization in the early 17th century. With the 1667 Peace of Breda, the Netherlands traded its New York colonies, including Manhattan, for the English colony of Suriname. This was later followed by the establishment of Maroon communities in Suriname's interior, alongside indigenous Amerindian communities. In addition, enslaved African Africans were freed in 1863, and contract laborers were recruited from China, India, and Java. As a result, Suriname enjoys a rich ethnic mosaic. It is a nation where Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and indigenous religions live peacefully and productively together. Since independence in 1975, Suriname has strengthened its democratic institutions and traditions. Reinforcing democracy and promoting respect for human rights and the rule of law are fundamental to U.S. relations with Suriname. If confirmed, I will vigorously continue these efforts and will support civil society and independent media and human rights defenders who play a critical role in these efforts. Suriname was once one of the more isolated countries in the Western Hemisphere. It increasingly serves as a crucial nexus among South America, the Caribbean, and the transatlantic world. Suriname is a key U.S. partner in the region, and the well-being of the United States is connected to Suriname through ties of commerce and geography. Decades of diplomatic relations between our two countries have developed strong economic and security partnerships. If confirmed, I commit to deepen our mutually beneficial economic, security, and democracy partnerships. Suriname also has potential, tremendous development potential. And if confirmed, I will work with the Surinamese government to develop opportunities for economic growth and increase trade and assist its economic recovery following the COVID-19 pandemic. As the biggest exporter to Suriname and its third largest importer, the United States plays a critical provides critical high-value materials for Suriname's economy. Our partnership looks likely to expand as major offshore oil reserves have been discovered, explored, and secured by American companies. The massive new oil wealth will transform Suriname, and if confirmed, I will deepen our economic and commercial relationship to advance both Surinamese and American prosperity and equitable economic growth, mindful of the threat of corruption. Suriname is also emerging as a global leader on the climate crisis response. More than 93% of the land surface in Suriname is covered by protected native forests. It is one of the few carbon-negative countries in the world, yet problems persist. The gold fields of Suriname have drawn U.S. companies, and the U.S. government is supporting efforts to curb illicit mining and deforestation, and the use of mercury, all of which gravely damages Suriname's environment. If confirmed, I look forward to partnering with Suriname to support its efforts to expand its positive environmental record. Suriname seeks greater military and law enforcement cooperation with the United States. It is a key member of the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative and partners with us in combating narcotics and human trafficking. And if confirmed, I will work to bolster those security Suriname's security capabilities, fight corruption, and strengthen our security and law enforcement cooperation. Finally, our embassy in Paramaribo has an exceptional team that works hard to advance bilateral relations, protect U.S. citizens abroad, and work with the government of Suriname to accomplish our foreign policy goals. 
Ensuring it is safe, secure, and well-resourced will be a top priority for me if I'm confirmed. Thank you for your consideration of my nomination, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you so much to all the witnesses. Before we begin uh, five-minute rounds of questions, I do have a few questions to ask each of you. This is uh, an important part of the hearing, and it is designed to make sure that you'll all be responsive to this committee should you be confirmed. In these questions I'm going to ask, I would ask each of you to provide just a yes or no answer. First, do you each agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. 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 Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. 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 Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. yes. Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefing and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. yes. Thank you very much. We'll now begin five-minute rounds of questions. Um, I'll start with you, Mr. Rodriguez. Um, I, what, a, what a difficult time in Nicaragua and what a difficult post uh, to which you've been nominated. I attended the Summit uh, of the Americas in Los Angeles in June, and it was interesting. There was quite a flap, as you know, about who should be invited to the summit. And a number of the nations in the Americas were critical of the United States for not having a full invitation of all countries in the hemisphere. Um, as I was speaking to some of those leaders who were critical, some chose not to attend, some attended and were critical, it was interesting they complained to me about the fact that Cuba and Venezuela had not been invited. No one complained that Nicaragua had not been invited. And I found that interesting. And when I asked them, hey, you've talked about Cuba and Venezuela, but you haven't mentioned Nicaragua, even, even those who strongly believe that Cuba and Venezuela sh should have been invited pretty much said Nicaragua is a disaster. We, we, we've got no, you know, we, we, we can't with a straight face make an argument that a president who imprisoned all of his rivals and has installed his wife as vice president and is throwing Mother Teresa and other, you know, Mother Teresa's organization and others out of the country, we can't with a straight face claim that they should have been invited to the summit. So what a difficult, difficult time. What space for U.S. sort of pro-democracy, pro-human rights activity uh, or support for organizations that are engaged in pro-human rights activity, what space exists within Nicaragua that you could um, promote should you be confirmed? Thank you, Senator. Uh, you are exactly right. Uh, it has really been a, um, a really lamentable turn of events really since 2018 uh, in Nicaragua. The space has been increasingly limited. However, we still maintain a uh, a strong and well-led USAID contingent in, in country, working with those human rights defenders and other NGOs that uh, continue to operate in country, and increasingly working with those who are uh, operating or directing operations from outside of the country. So those spaces still exist. And if confirmed, I look forward to redoubling our efforts to make sure that those voices are able to uh, be heard across Nicaragua and across the region. You mentioned um, the opinion uh, that, that our, 
our neighboring countries across the region ha have for Daniel Ortega and for the uh, really um, terrible undemocratic turn the country has taken. That's a, a huge uh, opportunity for us. It, bringing uh, that opinion uh, forward from our neighbors in the region, elevating that sentiment, elevating those voices, has a, has a big effect, not just across Nicaragua, but also on the, on, the, uh, on the government of Nicaragua. They are increasingly becoming a pariah state within the region, and I think we need to focus on uh, bringing along that regional support to help raise that, that additional voice and those additional pressures on the government of Nicaragua. Th thank you very much. I want to turn out of Mr. Fouché and Ms. Bond. Um, three, three nations in the region the, the democracy trend is in the right direction, and they have significant energy resources at a time when there's global energy insecurity. Uh, Guyana, Suriname, Trinidad, and Tobago. Um, Senator Rubin and I just had a meeting with the President of Guyana, President Ali, right before this hearing began. He was in our office, and it was a productive visit. Um, Guyana had a uh, proposal on the table for an IDB loan to develop their natural resources. The U.S. vetoed the loan in March. The IDB would not provide the $180 billion loan to allow Guyana to develop their energy resources, and it was the U.S. that vetoed it. I am really struck by an incoherence in this administration sort of energy policies. There's three goals. We want to we want to battle climate change. We want to help nations who are allies wean themselves away from dictators in terms of getting energy supply. We also have an interest in any country with whom we have an alliance to help them develop their economies in a positive way to produce um, economic activity that can help their people. I am very confused at the message that the administration is sending on energy policy. Vetoing an IDB loan for Guyana, um, but encouraging Saudi Arabia to pump more oil to help our allies. Often canceling U.S. domestic oil leases at the same time as we're trying to help our allies wean themselves away from Russian energy. Um, I don't expect you to, 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 to solve these three goals and harmonize them, but what I've been waiting for is the administration putting some um, policy on the table that expresses how they're trying to harmonize these goals. In particular, what might you do, should you be confirmed, and I'll begin with you, Mr. Fouché, what might you do to help Suriname or Trinidad and Tobago appropriately develop their energy resources guarding against corruption and some of the other issues. Because look, if we're going to veto loans to nations like Guyana, China's just going to step in and do those loans. I mean, let's not, let's not kid ourselves here. Uh, and then we end up losing influence with nations that would rather partner with the United States. What, what can you do should you be confirmed to help advance appropriate development of these nations' economies? Yeah, Mr. Senator, thank you very much for that question. Uh, this is really one of the critical issues in front of us right now as we look for Suriname's continued forward development of its democracy, its human rights structures, as well as its economy. Suriname is sitting on vast oil reserves, as we understand it, off its coast. And American companies have been involved in developing and extracting that oil wealth. They have done this without support from the United States government. They have not asked for our support, as I understand it. Nor has, uh, if I'm aware of it, uh, Suriname asked for any kind of loans through the IDB or other organizations of that nature. 
my role, if I'm confirmed as ambassador, is to ensure that American companies can continue to compete for those oil licenses and uh, contracts in the region and, if, and make sure that there's a fair and level playing field for that form of competition so that they do not lose out to countries like the, the PRC and others who might then be able to influence Suriname in negative ways. I would note, however, that Suriname's move toward democracy predates the discovery of oil off its shores. And it has been making the right steps in that. And if I'm confirmed as ambassador, I will continue to support and work with the Surinamese government to ensure that it continues its economic and development as a democracy. Thank with, you. with the sufferance of my colleagues, I'm over time, but I would like to give Ms. Bond the chance to briefly um, answer the question as well. Yes, I, this is an important issue that came up in the Summit of the Americas. And the Vice President brought forth a uh, new U.S.-Caribbean initiative um, that would really look at energy security and the development of three specific areas and taking a regional approach as opposed to an individualized country approach. So focused on energy security, focused on food security as well as finance. Um, so what we're really looking for is to leverage that opportunity and to look at long-term sustainable um, growth and, and focus in these areas and working on a regional basis as opposed to an individual basis. Thank you so much. Senator Rubio. Thank you again all for coming in. Let me start with you, Mr. Fouché. I'll just kind of go down the, the row here if I can in the time I'm allotted. Um, We've talked about energy, the role that it plays, its development when it comes to Suriname, its importance. And so uh, I did want to ask, there's a, the president uh, has an executive order and it tasks the Treasury and the State Department to, to develop a strategy to only support financing programs and stimulus packages and debt relief initiatives that are aligned with and support the goals of, of the Paris uh, Agreement. And um, I mean, it's already had an impact on an IDB decision with regards to uh, uh, Guyana, but I'm, I'm real concerned about how that would impact the ability of U.S. companies and, uh, and, and us to continue to encourage the development, even if we want them to diversify in their economy and we want to support them in that. I mean, why, why sh are we here? Does that executive order hold the potential of being viewed as us telling the, the people of, that, of Suriname that they, they can't develop uh, an advanced and modern economy uh, because it clashes with our support of the Paris Agreement. Thank you, Mr. Senator, for that question. It's a very important issue that we we've talked a little bit about this morning. I would say if American companies come to me, if I'm confirmed as ambassador, and ask for assistance in dealing with the Surinamese government on oil kind of issues or oil commercial contracts. I will have to look at each case individually to make sure that the assistance I'm able to give them uh, conforms with any executive order that's delivered by the president. I am unaware of any kind of a push at all or uh, statements by us that we don't want Suriname to develop its oil reserves or move forward and improve its economy. Um, I think there's a recognition that there will be a need for oil for the decades ahead even though we're trying to diversify energy resources throughout the world. Suriname, as I stated in my statement, is a carbon-negative country. It is meeting its requirements under the Paris Accord at this time, 
and I think it's committed to continuing to do so. And so I will work with Suriname to make sure it also meets its environmental. Well, again, and, and uh, when, when you have an executive order that basically asks Treasury and the State Department to structure financing programs and stimulus work and debt relief initiatives to be aligned to the climate agreement, there's the real concern, I think the legitimate concern, that that would not impact our ability to be of assistance in anything that has to do with oil and natural gas exploration. And we'll see how that plays out. I hope that's not the case, because I think that would negatively impact our relationship. Um, Ms. Fulton, on, on Uruguay, I've talked about a couple, you know, it's the, I think it's the first in the ranking um, by Freedom House and the World Justice Project in terms of democracy and rule law. Um, and and, um, and you know, as they're looking to revise the, the trade and investment framework agreement with the U.S., um, I'm sorry, in, in their new trade protocols, that mirror what we've done with Brazil and Ecuador, it's clear that they're eager to establish even more transparency measures and anti-corruption measures. So I've outlined a couple things I think we can do to really strengthen this relationship. With it. We have a willing partner in a stable country. There are a lot of good news coming out. Unfortunately, I'll tell you full out, they think we're not we don't care, like we're not paying attention to them and that we're not, we're ignoring. It's one of those countries that says we're doing everything right, we're everything you say you want countries in the region to be, but we're not getting the attention we want. I've talked about a couple things that we should do. The first is expanding the Development Finance Corporation's role in facilitating investment there. The problem we have is they're classified by the World Bank as a, um, uh, as a high-tech country. And so the World Bank, it sort of prevents us. But I, I think that's one of the things that requires us to go back and re-examine how that's used. And I really hope that we will look for ways to restructure that program so that countries like this, the country that J.P. Morgan, by the way, says is the least risky country in Latin America for investment, that the existence, that, that we're not prevented to do the DFC's uh, facilitating programs there. And then the others, I think there's a real opportunity to expand cooperation on security, space, and counter-narcotics. Um, and cooperation with them on space and satellite data sharing, for example, would help us uh, crack down on the black market that now exists in data. Are those two things that you would commit to exploring and perhaps pushing forward? Absolutely. Thank you, Senator. I, I agree with what you're saying and would be, if confirmed, looking forward to finding opportunities to working with you and your team to, to see how we can rethink uh, some, of the, some of the impediments that currently uh, prevent us from expanding our cooperation and seeking additional tools to, to enhance um, these areas of opportunity. Um, before I run out of time here, Mr. Rodriguez, the CAFTA is in a, an agreement, preferential trading arrangement among free nations. Is, uh, is Nicaragua a free nation? And if they're not, then what's the, should we continue to provide the preferential trade benefits that CAFTA provides to free nations? I mean, the point of it was to encourage the opposite of everything that Ortega and his uh, crazy wife, who's the vice president, are doing. Thank you, Senator Rubio. Let me just say, if confirmed, I would support using all economic and diplomatic tools uh, to bring about a change in direction in Nicaragua. Removing Nicaragua from CAFTA-DR is a potentially very powerful tool and something we have to seriously consider. I know we currently exclude Nicaragua from supporting functions under CAFTA-DR, trade development capacity, building activities, and the like. Uh, but if confirmed, I commit to working with USTR and other agencies uh, within the U.S. government to, uh, to evaluate all possible means 
for bringing that uh, pressure to bear on Nicaragua. Mr. Duncan, real quick, I'm already over time by a minute, but I did want to touch on, um, on El, El Salvador. It's a uh, difficult puzzle to unpack, and on certainly the trend lines there in terms of the President Bukele's view of the United States has deteriorated rapidly in the last couple of years to the point now where it's in a really troubling situation. I'm very troubled by it. And um, he doesn't seem to care a lot about what U.S. foreign policy is with regards to the country, very openly criticizes and mocks the U.S. And, and other Western institutions. And the reality of it is that despite all this, we, we, we have to contend with the fact that his popularity remains pretty high and, and his party has enjoyed electoral gains as a result. So uh, for whatever reason, he is tapping into some populist sentiment in the country that's converting itself into political support and that I think gives him license, at least domestically, to continue down this trend line. But there's an interesting dynamic. On the one hand, we're carrying out this name and shame campaign from Washington where we are sanctioning individuals and calling them out and, uh, for their alleged corruption and behavior and the like. And on the other hand, um, you see them negotiating with the IMF where we are you know, the, the leading contributor towards. And um, it seems like the, our administration is holding open the possibility that there would still be an IMF, IMF arrangement I would imagine because the understanding that if we didn't, there could be a mass migration event that would impact neighboring countries and or they could turn to alternative means of financing outside of the, the structured system that the United States has influence over. How do we balance our national interest and desire to have not just stability there, but some relationship with, with this campaign that's being carried out to, that, that I think has led to pretty open diplomatic and economic uh, hostility. <clears throat> Thank you for the question, Senator. I, I think first and foremost we have to approach the, the Salvadoran government as we should uh, most governments from a position of respect um, and acknowledge, as you said, uh, that they choose their own leaders. And uh, it appears that their current president is indeed, uh, at this point, very popular. Uh, that's a reality uh, and we must recognize that. However, um, I think it's also true, as you indicated in your uh, opening statement, that um, there have been some, some uh, developments in El Salvador that don't seem to be conducive to strengthening Salvadoran democracy. Um, and uh, there have also been some, uh, some economic trends that uh, are somewhat concerning. Uh, with respect to the sanctions you referenced, I think it's important for us to uh, use the tools Congress has given us, whether that's Global Bignitsky or the uh, Section 353 list or Section 7031, to use those tools appropriately uh, to target individuals who have been involved in acts of corruption or acts that undermine democracy or the rule of law. Uh, and I think we can do that while continuing to maintain a respectful relationship with the government of El Salvador. I don't see any inconsistency there. With respect to the IMF uh, negotiations, which you mentioned, uh, I'm not up to date on exactly where those negotiations are. I believe uh, they are still talking to the IMF. I know the IMF has publicly expressed some concerns uh, that uh, they, as I understand it, want to see satisfied before they move forward with that loan. So uh, as, as far as I know, no final decision on that has been made. Thank you so much, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I want to thank you and the ranking member for holding this hearing. 
as a chairman of the full committee, I appreciate that uh, chairs and rankings who preside over nominations here is one of the fundamental uh, responsibilities that we have to move nominees forward. And I appreciate uh, those of my colleagues who have fulfilled that duty during this work period. Congratulations to all the nominees and your families who are with you. Uh, this hearing comes at a time when human rights and fundamental freedoms face numerous challenges in our hemisphere, and champions of democracy are needed now more than ever. In Nicaragua, uh, Daniel Ortega has become what he once fought to overthrow, a ruthless dictator. His disdain for democracy and decency are a test to the international community as we confront the rising global tide of authoritarianism. In El Salvador, President Bukele is wielding populism and a new digital tools to perpetuate a cult of personality, even as he undermines El Salvador's democratic institutions at an alarming rate. If confirmed, the leadership of each of the nominees here today will be indispensable to confronting the challenges and forging new opportunities for the United States and Latin America and the Caribbean. And let me take a point of personal privilege to briefly recognize Deputy Assistant Secretary Heidi Fulton. Ms. Fulton was a Pearson Fellow in my office from 2009 to 2010. The contributions she made during her time with us, including helping draft the first version of what would later become the OAS Revitalization and Reform Act of 2013 that came into law, were a testament to her decades of experience in Latin America and the Caribbean. I'd like to take credit that all of the successes she's had since then as a result of her time with me, but it's her incredible abilities and we're glad to see her being considered for the ambassador to Uruguay. Uh, Mr. Rodriguez, Nicaragua has been in a state of crisis since April 18th of 2018. That was the day the anti-government protest triggered a years-long wave of repression that has killed 329 people, injured thousands, and condemned 190 political prisoners to arbitrary detention in conditions amounting to torture. The Ortega regime has no shame. They have jailed, expelled, harassed political opponents, former lawyers, business partners, representatives of the Catholic Church. They have shuttered organizations that feed and shelter Nicaraguans. They've closed eight of the country's universities. They've attempted to withdraw from the Organization of American States, all while cozying up to Russia. They've even kicked out Mother Teresa's missionaries of charity. Nicaragua is on the path to becoming a totalitarian dictatorship. We often talk about how to respond to crises instead of investing more in prevention. Our Renaced Act, which was signed into law last year, lays out a framework for U.S. policy, but we need to act now. So if you are confirmed, what steps would you take to mobilize a robust international strategy to prevent the onset of a deeper humanitarian crisis in Nicaragua? Thank you, Senator. If confirmed, uh, as you point out, we really need to mobilize voices from across the region and around the world to call out the human rights abuses, to call out the undemocratic um, actions that the government of Daniel Ortega is taking. And we need to call for the immediate release of the 190 political prisoners that you mentioned. If confirmed, I commit to working with UN Human Rights Council, USO, uh, OAS, excuse me, uh, our partners in Europe and Canada uh, to seek their voice and their action in the form of sanctions to join our efforts to uh, to, to highlight the abuses and to isolate the regime of Daniel Ortega. 
Let me follow up with uh, uh, something that uh, Senator Rubio raised. Our Renaissance Act lays out congressional guidance on suspending Nicaragua from the CAFTA-DR trade agreement. Um, and I know it's a powerful tool. The same thing with El Salvador. But we entered into these agreements with a universal concept of who we were entering into. Nicaragua certainly does not fall in that category at this point in time. What steps will you take to implement what the law says, and do you commit to keeping this committee informed on a quarterly basis on the nature of Russia's deepening cooperation with Nicaragua? Yes, Senator, I commit to, to keeping the committee informed. Uh, in addition, if confirmed, sir, I uh, commit to uh, adding my weight to the full implementation of the Renaissance Act. As I mentioned, working with USTR and others on the CAFTA-DR question, um, continuing to implement the act in terms of uh, holding uh, officials in Nicaragua accountable for the human rights abuses. We recently sanctioned another 23 individuals under Section 353. Thanks to the Renaissance Act, that is a new capacity that we have, and we're taking full advantage of it. Again, Senator, if confirmed, uh, I will work with our interagency co uh, colleagues to maximize the pressure. Uh, both uh, through Renaissance and all of the tools that the Senate. Oh, I look forward to that. We need a strong voice there. Mr. Chairman, I have the indulgence of the chair for yes, another minute. Uh, Mr. Duncan, I was a little surprised at your response uh, to Senator Rubio about President Bukele's popularity. Hitler was popular. Putin is popular in Russia. It doesn't mean that because a person is popular in their country that, in fact, we don't press extremely hard on violations of human rights and democracy. Are we agreed on that? We are indeed agreed on that, Senator. Okay. Uh, so we have an increasing challenging situation in El Salvador, one that threatens both the future of democracy in the country and bilateral relations with the United States. Over the last two years, President Bukele has presided over a, num a number of alarming setbacks for democratic governance, undermining judicial independence, intimidating opposition lawmakers by using security forces to occupy the legislature, negotiating political pacts with gangs, regularly attacking journalists and media outlets. And in addition to these actions, Bukele has also repeatedly used his network of Twitter trolls to attack, uh, to attack and threaten not only government critics within El Salvador, but also United States officials, including my colleague in the House of Representatives, uh, Congresswoman Norma Torres. It's amazing what he is doing directing against a member of the United States Congress and former Ambassador Gene Manns. So I want to hear from you. Do you commit to prioritizing these issues and discussions with President Bukele and senior officials within his government? Yes, Senator, I do make that commitment to you. Uh, and I must tell you that I think the, uh, the exchange with uh, regarding uh, Representative Torres was absolutely unacceptable. Uh, and I would certainly be happy to make that clear to the Salvadoran government. What other steps do you believe the United States needs to take to prevent further democratic backsliding in El Salvador? Senator, I think, uh, first of all, I, I agree with you. There have been a number of developments in El Salvador over the last two years that are concerning uh, when it comes to the strength and the health of Salvador's democracy. Uh, I think we have made judicious use of the various sanctions tools that Congress has given us to highlight some of those problems, whether it's the removal of the Supreme Court magistrates in the Constitutional Chamber, uh, the gang truce uh, that you referred to, uh, or other acts of co uh, either corruption or acts that uh, tend to undermine democracy. 
and I think we need to continue using those tools uh, appropriately, uh, judiciously, but uh, we need to keep using them to send the message that El Salvador's best future lies on the path of democracy. All right, uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you for your indulgence. If I, if I just may, I will have a series of questions for the record. I don't want the rest of you to think I, I have no issues for you. I do, uh, but in deference to my colleagues who are still here, I'd like substantive, substantive underlined responses to them before I consider putting you on a business uh, meeting agenda. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Senator Portman. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Look, it's a complicated political environment, and uh, I, I really appreciate uh, uh, all of you being willing to step up and serve your country. For um, all of you but one, you have been serving your country through foreign service and uh, have accomplished a great deal to, to get to the, uh, the level that, that you are as ambassadors. Um, but we need your help. I mean, this is discouraging, what's going on. Um, Uruguay being the exception, and uh, to you know, the comments by Senator Rubio, I, I think we do not take advantage of uh, these relatively pro-democracy, pro-U.S. center and center-right governments enough and don't show them enough love and support. And that's one reason we end up, you know, with uh, more difficult situations as we see in pretty much every other country represented, even uh, with regard to Suriname, with regard to their opening to China, which concerns me greatly in the Belt and Road Initiative. So. Um, so that would be, I would uh, echo those concerns, and I think we need to redouble our efforts to, to demonstrate our support for those countries that are standing up for democracy, human rights, and, uh, and allied with us. Uh, with regard to El Salvador, I'm going to come at this a little differently. Uh, on the U.S. border, we're experiencing something unparalleled. We've never seen it before. We have record levels of people, drugs, coming across the border. We've got three months left in the fiscal year until we know what the final numbers are. Already we're at record levels of any year in the history of our country. And um, this is based on so-called encounters, uh, but it's, it's true that um, you know, Salvador has been sending people to the United States for a long time, legally and illegally. Uh, in fact, I'm told that the $7, million, $7 billion in remittances went to El Salvador last year. That's the World Bank figure. That's a quarter of the GDP of El Salvador. And yet you have uh, Bukele uh, you know, treating uh, the United States relationship in, in a way that would, it would you know, indicate that he doesn't <laughs> um, uh, want to cooperate or work with us, and yet there's a strong connection. I don't know quite how to use that leverage, but $7 billion in remittances. Um, one question I'd have for you, uh, Mr. Duncan, because you've been at this a while. You've got a lot of experience in Latin America. Title 42 is about to be revoked if the administration has, has its way, and roughly half of the people who are stopped at the border and turned back are turned back uh, because of Title 42, and yet we have record levels of illegal migration. So without 42 being in place, it would be a flood, and that's because of our asylum policy in my view primarily, but it's also other uh, changes that the administration made. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think human smugglers and drug cartels will uh, come from Salvador in increased numbers if Title 42 is revoked at the border? Thank you for the question, Senator. Um, I'm, I'm afraid I can't speak to what the effect of uh, a revocation of Title 42 would be. I think uh, you can. Nor, nor can I tell you, uh, because I'm not involved in the, the conversations about Title 42. Uh, what I can say is that, uh, as you correctly point out, uh, we've been seeing uh, irregular migration from Central America 
Salvador is a part of that. I think they, uh, in the last year or so, have been uh, in fourth place, about 6% of the total uh, behind Mexico, uh, Honduras, and Guatemala. <clears throat> I think if I were confirmed, uh, I would be very focused on implementing the administration strategy with regard to the root causes of migration. I think democracy needs to be strengthened in El Salvador because I think that's critical to prosperity. I think we need to keep working with the Salvadorans to strengthen the rule of law and try and reduce crime and violence. Yeah, Mr. Duncan, let me interrupt you if I could. Um, I mean, that's fine. Uh, we've, we've spent, I don't know, $3.6 billion in the last five years in Central America with regard to the root causes, and the uh, migration has increased, not decreased. So I'm not against dealing with the root causes, but that's not the issue. The issue is the pull factor. Uh, we went to Latin America, some of us here, including the chairman recently, and the presidents of the countries we visited, four of them in Latin America and Central America, all said the same thing, basically, which is you guys are pulling our people north with your policies. So you have a role to play there. You say you can't speak to it. Uh, I hope you will speak to it, because I think our own policies are, are largely <laughs> the reason that you see um, this pull for the region. and. Uh, and the illicit drugs are not produced in El Salvador, but boy, it's a major transit country for cocaine and heroin in particular. Um, so I hope that if confirmed, you will get involved in these issues and not just uh, the root causes as important as they are. Um, the Salvadoran cooperation on counter-drug and anti-gang efforts, I assume you're aware that we do not get the cooperation that we would like to have. Uh, do you commit that you will um, uh, work on increasing our level of cooperation in that area? Thank you, Senator. Uh, yes, absolutely. Counter-narcotics has been uh, one of the areas where we have had some success in our collaboration with the Salvadorans. And if confirmed, I would seek to do everything in my power to increase uh, that collaboration. We have also worked with them, and are working with them, I should say, uh, on uh, border intelligence, uh, on alien smuggling. Uh, I think those are areas that can even be expanded, and that's what I would seek to do if confirmed. Okay. I'll have other questions in writing for my, the, your other colleagues, but uh, again, thank you all for your willingness to serve. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Portman. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to all of our nominees who are here today. Um, I can think of no greater honor than to represent the greatest nation in the world uh, in the countries that you're seeking to represent the United States of America. Uh, I'd like to start with you, Mrs. Bond, on the first question, to talk about um, the Chinese Communist Party and its interference, its malign influence in the Western Hemisphere uh, has grown significantly. Uh, clearly, it's become more visible in the past decade. Uh, Beijing is using its predatory economic behavior to target the region for its commodities and its raw materials. That's the target. I believe we should be doing everything we can to reshore our supply chains back to the United States from China and as appropriate, to nearshore supply chains to friendly countries like those in the Caribbean and in Latin America. Efforts to support private sector investments in emerging markets are especially critical at this time of strategic global competition with China. And as the United States reshores its supply chains, this will create big nearshoring opportunities for our friends in this hemisphere. So I wanted to get your perspective, Ms. Bond, on China's diplomatic and economic engagement in Trinidad and Tobago and how you see that unfolding and the posture you might adopt there. Thank you, Senator, for that question. Indeed, uh, PR and C incursions are happening all over the world, and the Caribbean is no exception, nor Trinidad and Tobago. Um, they were one of the first to join the Road and Belt initiatives. Um, however, if confirmed as ambassador, 
um, I will do everything in my power to ensure that we are positioned to be the partner of choice to Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I would be a strong advocate for private sector investment um, and continue our strong workingship, our, our, our work with Trinidad and Tobago, particularly in uh, safety and security and creating a more level playing field for private investment and U.S. investment in the country. U United States has been and continues to be one of Trinidad and Tobago's largest markets for LNG exports. Um, it is seventh in the world in terms of LNG exports, and it has one of the largest gas liquefaction um, facilities in the Western Hemisphere with a great deal of institutional knowledge, which I think they can share regionally. Uh, it is also um, one of the top exporters of urea, ammonium nitrate fertilizer. And just last week, the US uh, International Trade Commission uh, approved the import of this fertilizer, which you know will uh, address issues of agricultural production. Certainly as well as assist with global food um, supplies. So well, if confirmed, these are areas that would continue to work on and continue to bolster trade with the United States and our partners. Well, I, I uh, encourage you to continue to support uh, stronger energy production here in this hemisphere. We're doing everything in this country to reduce energy production right now, much to my chagrin, but I see the opportunity there, and I'm, I'm very pleased to see that you see it as well. In my home state, uh, agriculture is a big industry, and pharmaceutical, I'm sorry, fertilizer prices are a huge issue as well, compressing margins for farmers and leading to what I think will be a food crisis, not only here in America, but around the world. So thank you for your diligence there, and I would encourage you to uh, cooperate and coordinate with us here as we begin to deepen our reshoring efforts, because I do believe this is a big opportunity in the, in the country that you seek to represent. Mr. Rodriguez, can I turn to you? Um, if you're confirmed, you're gonna be taking on a challenging assignment in the Western Hemisphere. Um, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration have imposed numerous financial sanctions against members of the Nicaraguan government, their legislature, their judiciary, and President Ortega's family. Uh, in December of 2021, Nicaragua reestablished diplomatic ties with China and seized control of Taiwan's embassy and diplomatic offices, saying that they belonged to China. The Ortega regime provided Taiwanese diplomats only two weeks to leave Nicaragua. Subsequently, the Nicaraguan government signed a cooperation agreement for China's Belt and Road Initiative that took place in January of 2022. Uh, in June of 2022, the Ortega regime and its rubber stamp Congress authorized a limited number of Russian troops Russian aircraft and ships and weapons to operate on Nicaraguan soil. Uh, this seems to be a renewal and expansion of, of the November 2021 authorization for Russian forces to operate there in the country. So Mr. Rodriguez, in your view, what's the most concerning aspect of Nicaragua, Nicaragua as it relates to US national security? Thank you, Senator. Their relationships with both of the countries you mentioned are deeply, deeply concerning. Mm -hmm. um, the, the decision by the government of Nicaragua to uh, leave off recognition of, of Taiwan in favor of the PRC was deeply lamentable. Mm. Uh, the government uh, is depriving the Nicaraguan citizens of a, uh, a reliably democratic partner uh, in favor of 
uh, opacity and, uh, and, and self-dealing, which is entirely in line with what the government of Nicaragua has been about since 2018. Uh, their slide toward authoritarianism and, and away from transparency and rule of law uh, are, are deeply concerning. Uh, with respect to uh, Russia, Senator, they're clearly following the Russian playbook. Mm-hmm. And um, with support and guidance from Russia, they are drafting and implementing laws. In fact, the, the foreign agents law in Nicaragua is, is known locally as Putin's law. So there is clearly deep influence from Russia. If confirmed, uh, I believe uh, we need to very loudly stand with the Nicaraguan people against anyone uh, who is aligned with Russia or China in stifling the democratic uh, aspirations of the people of Nicaragua and, uh, and, and abusing and, and taking from them their human rights. Well said. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll submit the rest of my questions for the record. Thank you, Senator Haggerty. I have uh, one additional question that I want to direct to uh, Ms. Fulton, uh, an Uruguay question. Um, and, and it's really more of a to- kind of a topic than a question. And since you're a pro with long experience in the region, you know, it's, it, I just kind of want to grapple with it. We're talking an awful lot about problems in the region, and there are problems by the boatload, but there's also some real success stories. So um, Panama, the Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, and Ecuador have come together with the Alliance for Democracy and Development. They've said at a time of democratic backsliding, we want to be forward-leaning. But in my conversations with them, they have not yet been... um, you know, I, I think impressed with the degree to which the United States want to work with them to succeed. I will say this, there was a, a, an agreement signed in the last couple of days focusing on nearshoring in the ADD. That could be great. So um, Ecuador, we, uh, we met with the president of Ecuador, President Lasso, pro-U.S. president about a year ago, and he said, look, the one thing that can really help us succeed is if the U.S. would contemplate a trade agreement with Ecuador, possibly including Ecuador in the in the existing trade agreement with Colombia. We had a hearing yesterday about economic statecraft with State Department witnesses. I asked, has there, you know, are, are we doing anything to follow up on that? And I got a diplomatic answer, but I think the answer really was no, because I'm not sure that the administration really likes trade agreements. Um, and then we, we've got this situation where Guyana, which has come through this very difficult time, and I know Guyana's not on the panel today, but you know they really wanted this IDB loan uh, to develop their energy resources, and it was the U.S. that vetoed the loan, um, which hurts their own economic development and probably also hurts an ability for Guyana to be uh, an important and more stable energy partner in a world marked by too many unstable authoritarian energy partners. So Uruguay. Uruguay is a model in so many ways. Uruguay is now doing trade agreement, free trade agreements with Turkey and China, and the president has indicated, president of Uruguay, that they would very much like to do a trade agreement with the U.S. and also with the U.K., but the quote from the president is, the U.S. government, quote, is not looking south. Um, it, it seems to me, in a part of the world where we've got a lot of challenges, the best thing we could do is take the nations that are favorably inclined to us, that want deeper relationships with us, that where the trend lines for democracy are, are green rather than red, they're going the right direction, and why not really invest in these nations because they can become examples for others, 
And if with their entreaties we're not investing in these nations, that also sends a message that can be a very debilitating one. So I guess should you be confirmed in Uruguay with the experience you have with the positive track record that Uruguay has, has put together, what can we do to really spotlight this relationship and do it in a way that's not only good for Uruguay but sends the message in the region that if you're doing things right, the United States is going to be a great partner with you? Thank you, Senator. I think you've touched on a question that I have, uh, I've certainly grappled with and if confirmed would look forward to working with you and your staff and other members of this committee to, to try to find better answers to exactly that question. I think that uh, if confirmed being an ambassador not only means representing U.S. policies to the, the partner um, to whom I'm accredited, but it also means representing back the importance and the opportunity. Um, Senator Rubio touched on the importance of, of thinking strategically about the investments, investments and decisions that we make. We have tremendous challenges in this hemisphere, and I know from my current position we, we prioritize those with our, our funding and our resources based on some of the problems that are, are closer to home and, and more immediately on fire in front of us. Um, I, if confirmed, would look forward to, to being a, a loud proponent to arguing for strategic investments and seeking additional opportunities, seeking ways to, um, to rethink some of the impediments that we have in place and, and seeking new tools to, to strengthen a relationship that is with a partner uh, who's, uh, who, whom, as you have noted, uh, would genuinely wants to work with us. And I think the importance of this opportunity should not be understated and it should not be lost. I appreciate that testimony. I think you're right on sort of a human psychology. We tend to focus on the problems, um, and that's natural. But our ability to solve problems in countries with deep problems, we have to be very humble about it. I mean, it, 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 these are ultimately problems that need to be solved within, and we can be, we can be assets, we can be helpful. But um, in, a, in a region where there are plenty of problems, there's also plenty of good that's going on. And I just feel like we're in some instances kind of ignoring the good or underinvesting our time where there's good, or in some instances even taking steps that are counterproductive to allies that are trying to do it the right way. I just hope we'll focus more on some bright spots and try to make them even brighter. That would be my hope, and I think you're very, very well equipped to, to carry that mission. Senator Ruby, do you have any additional questions? Senator Haggerty, additional questions? Listen, I really appreciate this opportunity. It's been a great discussion. Committee members are very, very interested in these countries. Uh, we will do all we can to be prompt in, in moving forward from this point. I'd ask members of the committee, should they have questions that they want to submit in writing, a number of indicated that they would, they should submit them by the close of business on July 29th. And I would also ask that each of you, should questions be submitted, for you individually that you try to respond promptly and comprehensively. And with that, this hearing is adjourned.